too, the supreme crime of the ages, a blow at the very throat of civilization. The three nations which began it, Austria, Russia and Germany, are governed, the first by a doddering imbecile, the second by a weak-minded melancholic, and the third by an epileptic degenerate, drunk upon the vision of himself as the warlord of Europe. Behind each of these men is a little clique of bloodthirsty aristocrats. They fall into a quarrel among themselves. The pretext is that Serbia instigated the murder of the heir apparent to the Austrian throne. There is good reason for believing that as a matter of fact this murder was instigated by the war party in Austria, because the heir apparent had democratic and anti-military tendencies. First they murder him and then they use his death as a pretext for plunging the whole of civilization into a murderous strife. Hermann Ritter, editor of the Staatszeitung of New York contributed a German-American view. Mr. Ritter saw the handwriting on the wall and he very soundly deprecated war and pictured its horrors. But he could not forget that he was appealing to a large class that held the German viewpoint. He therefore found it necessary to soften his phrase with some hyphenated sophistry. He dared not say that Germany was the culprit and would be the principal sufferer. His article was, sooner or later the nations engaged in war will find themselves spent and weary. There will be victory for some, defeat for others, and profit for none. There can hardly be any lasting laurels for any of the contending parties. To change the map of Europe is not worth the price of a single human life. Patriotism should never rise above humanity. The history of war is merely a succession of blunders. Each treaty of peace sows the seed of future strife. War offends our intelligence and outrages our sympathies. We can but stand aside and murmur the pity of it all. The pity of it all. War breeds socialism. That night the opposing hosts rest on their arms, searching the heavens for the riddle of life and death and wondering what their tomorrow will bring forth. Around a thousand campfires the steady conviction is being driven home that this sacrifice of life might all be avoided. It seems difficult to realize that millions of men, skilled by years of constant application, have left the factory, the mill, or the desk to waste not only their time but their very lives and possibly the lives of those dependent on them to wage war. Brother against brother, the more reasonable it appears that peace must quickly come the more hopeless does it seem. I am convinced that an overwhelming majority of the populations of Germany, England and France are opposed to this war. The governments of these states do not want war. War deals in human life as recklessly as the gambler in money. Imagine the point of view of a commanding general who is confronted with the task of taking a fortress. That position will cost me 5,000 lives. It will be cheap at the price. For it must be taken. He discounts 5,000 human lives as easily as the manufacturer marks off $5,000 for depreciation. And so 5,000 homes are saddened that another flag may fly over a few feet of fortified masonry. What a grim joke for Europe to play upon humanity. There were not wanting those to point out to Mr. Ritter that the sacrifice of life could have been avoided had Germany and its tool Austria played fair with Serbia and the balance of Europe. Also. His statement that the government of Germany did not want the war has been successfully challenged from a hundred different sources. H.G. Wells, the eminent English author, contributed a prophecy which translated very plainly the handwriting on the wall. He said, this war is not going to end in diplomacy, it is going to end diplomacy. It is quite a different sort of war from any that had gone before. At the end there will be no conference of Europe on the old lines, but a conference of the world. It will make a peace that will put an end to Krupp, and the spirit of Krupp and Kruppism and the private armament firms behind Krupp forevermore. Austria formally declared war against Serbia, July 28, 
1914. During the few days intervening between the dispatch of the ultimatum to Serbia and the formal declaration of war, Serbia and Russia, seeing the inevitable, had commenced to mobilize their armies. On the last day of July, Germany as Austria's ally, issued an ultimatum with a 12-hour limit demanding that Russia cease mobilization. They were fond of short-term ultimatums. They did not permit more than enough time for the dispatch to be transmitted and received, much less considered. Before the terms of it had expired, Russia demanded assurances from Austria that war was not forthcoming and it continued to mobilize. On August 1st, Germany declared war. France then began to mobilize. Germany invaded the Duchy of Luxembourg and demanded free passage for its troops across Belgium to attack France at that country's most vulnerable point. King Albert of Belgium refused his consent on the ground that the neutrality of his country had been guaranteed by the powers of Europe including Germany itself, and appealed for diplomatic help from Great Britain, that country, which had sought through its foreign secretary, Sir Edward Grey, to preserve the peace of Europe, was now roused, August 4th, it sent an ultimatum to Germany demanding that the neutrality of Belgium be respected, as the demand was not complied with, Britain formally declared war against Germany, Italy at that time was joined with Germany and Austria in what was known as the Triple Alliance, but Italy recognized the fact that the war was one of aggression and held that it was not bound by its compact to assist its allies. The sympathies of its people were with the French and British. Afterwards Italy repudiated entirely its alliance and all obligations to Germany and Austria and entered the war on the side of the allies. Thus the country of Mazzini, of Garibaldi and Victor Emmanuel, ranged itself on the side of emancipation and human rights. The refusal of Italy to enter a war of conquest was the first event to set the balance of the world seriously thinking of the meaning of the war. If Italy refused to join its old allies, it meant that Italy was too honorable to assist their purposes. Italy knew the character of its associates. When it finally repudiated them altogether and joined the war on the other side, it was a terrific indictment of the Germanic powers, for Italy had much more to gain in a material way from its old alliance. It simply showed the world that spirit was above materialism, that emancipation was in the air and that the lamp of civilization might be dim but could not be darkened by the forces of evil. Chapter III. Militarism and Autocracy Doomed. Germany's machine her scientific endeavor to mold soldiers' influence on thought and lives of the people militarism in the home the status of women false theories and false gods the system ordained to perish wars shocks America inclines to neutrality German and French treatment of neutrals contrasted experiences of Americans. Abroad and in our UDA home Statue of Liberty takes on new beauty blood of Negro and white to flow. Those who had followed the Kaiser's attitudes and their reflections priesting the war in the German military party were struck by a strange blending of martial glory and Christian compunction. No one prays more loudly than the hypocrite and none so smug as the devil when a saint he would be. During long years the military machine had been under construction. Human ingenuity had been reduced to a remarkable state of organization and efficiency. One of the principal phases of culture was the inauguration of a sort of scientific discipline which made the German people not only soldiers in the field, but soldiers in the workshop, in the laboratory and at the desk. The system extended to the schools and universities and permeated the thought of the nation. It particularly was reflected in the home, the domestic arrangements and customs of the people. The German husband was the commander-in-chief of his household. It was not that benevolent lordship which the man of the house assumes toward his wife and family in other nations. The stern note of command was always evident, that attitude of attention, eyes front, 
and in questioning obedience. German women always were subordinate to their husbands and the male members of their families. It was not because the man made the living and supported the woman. Frequently the German woman contributed as much towards the support of the family as the males, it was because the German male by the system which had been inculcated into him, regarded himself as a superior being and his women as inferiors, made for drudgery, for childbearing, and for contributors to his comforts and pleasures. His attitude was pretty much like that of the American Indian towards his squaw. Germany was the only nation on earth pretending to civilization in which women took the place of beasts of burden. They not only worked in the fields, but frequently pulled the plow and other implements of agriculture. It was not an uncommon sight in Germany to see a woman and a large dog harnessed together drawing a milk cart. When it became necessary to deliver the milk the woman slipped her part of the harness, served the customer, resumed her harness and went on to the next stop. In Belgium, in Holland and in France, women delivered the milk also. But the cart always was drawn by one or two large dogs or other animals and the woman was the driver. In Austria it was a strange sight to foreigners, but occasioned no remark among the people, to see women drawing carts and wagons in which were seated their lords and masters. Not infrequently the boss wielded a whip. The pride of the German nation was in its efficient workmen. Friends of the country and its system hath want to the fact of universal labor as its great virtue, because to a work is good, really. They were compelled to work. Long hours and the last degree of efficiency were necessary in order to meet the requirements of life and the tremendous burdens of taxation caused by the army, the navy, the fortifications and the military machine in general, to say nothing of the expense of maintaining the autocratic pomp of the Kaiser, his sons and satellites. Every member of the German family had his or her task, even to the little three-year-old toddler whose business it was to look after the brooms dust rags and other household utensils. There was nothing of cheerfulness or even of the dignity of labor about this. It was hard, unceasing, grinding toil which crushed the spirits of the people. It was part of the system to cause them to welcome war as a diversion. To the German mind everything had an aspect of seriousness. The people took their pleasure seriously. On their holidays, mostly occasions on which they celebrated an event in history or the birthday of a monarch or military hero or during the hours which they could devote to a relaxation, they gathered with serious, stolid faces in beer gardens. If they danced it was mostly a cumbersome performance. Generally they preferred to sit and blink behind great foaming tankards and listen to intellectual music. No other nation had such music. It was so intellectual in itself that it relieved the listeners of the necessity of thinking. There was not much of melody in it, little of the dance movement and very little of the lighter and bare manifestations of life. It has been described as a sort of harmonious discord, typifying mysterious, tragic and awe-inspiring things. The people sat and ate their heavy food and drank their beer, their ears engaged with the strains of the orchestra, their eyes by the movements of the conductor, while their tired brains rested and digestion proceeded. To the average German family a picnic or a day's outing was a serious affair. The labor of preparation was considerable and then they covered as much of the distance as possible by walking in order to save carfare. In the parade was the tired, careworn wife usually carrying one, sometimes two infants in her arms. The other children lugged the lunch baskets, hammocks, umbrellas and other paraphernalia. At the head of the procession majestically marched the lord of the outfit, smoking his cigar or pipe, a suggestion of the goose step in his stride, carrying nothing except his dignity and military deportment. With this kind of start the reader can imagine the good time they all had. 
Militarism and autocracy doomed joy to the German mind in mass was an unknown quantity. The literature on which they fed was heavier and more somber than their music. When the average German tried to be gay and playful he reminded one of an elephant trying to caper. Their humor in the main, manifested itself in coarse and vulgar jests. For athletics they had their turn variants in which men went through hard, laborious exercises which made them muscle-bound. Their favorite sports were hunting and fencing the desire to kill or wound. They rode some but they knew nothing of baseball, boxing, tennis, golf or the usual sports so popular with young men in England, France and America. Aside from fencing, they had not a sport calculated to produce agility or nimbleness of foot and brain. Their emotions expanded and their sentiments thrilled at the spectacle of war. Uniforms, helmets and gold lace delighted their eyes. The parade, the guard mount, the review were the finest things they knew. To a people trained in such a school and purposely given great burdens that they might attain fortitude, war was second nature. They welcomed it as a sort of pastime. In the system on which culture was based, it was necessary to strike deeply the religious note, no difference if it was a false note. The German ear was so accustomed to discord it could not recognize the true from the false. The Kaiser was heralded to his people as a deeply religious man. In his public utterances he never failed to call upon God to grant him aid and bless his works. One of the old traditions of the fatherland was that the king, being specially appointed by God, could do no wrong. To the thinking portion of the nation this could have been nothing less than absurd fallacy. But where the majority do not think, if the thing is asserted strongly and often enough, they come to accept it. It becomes a belief. The people had become so impressed with the devoutness of the Kaiser and his assumption of divine guidance, that the great majority of them believed the Kaiser was always right, that he could do no wrong. When the great blow of war finally was struck the Kaiser asked his God to look down and bless the sword that he had drawn, a prayer altogether consistent coming from his lips. For the God he worshipped loved war, was a God of famine, rapine and blood. From the moment of that appeal, military autocracy and absolute monarchy were doomed. It took time, it took lives, it took more treasure than a thousand men could count in a lifetime. But the assault had been against civilization on the very foundation of all that humanity had gained through countless centuries. The forces of light were too strong for it, would not permit it to triumph. The President of the United States, from the bedside of his dying wife, appealed to the nations for some means of reaching peace for Europe. The last thoughts of his dying helpmate, were of the great responsibility resting upon her husband incident to the awful crisis in the lives of the nations of Earth, that was becoming more pronounced with each second of time. The Pope was stricken to death by the great calamity to civilization. A few minutes before the end came he said that the Almighty in his infinite mercy was removing him from the world to spare him the anguish of the awful war. The first inclination of America was to be neutral. She was far removed from the scenes of strife and knew little of the hidden springs and causes of the war. Excepting in the case of a few of her public men, her editors, professors and scholars, European politics were as a sealed book. The President of the United States declared for neutrality, that individual and nation should avoid the inflaming touch of the war passion. We kept that attitude as long as was consistent with national patience and the larger claims of humanity and universal justice. As an evidence of our lack of knowledge of the impending conflict, a party of Christian men were on the sea with the humanitarian object in view of attending a world's peace conference in Constance, Germany Germany of all places, then engaged in trying to burn up the world. Arriving in Paris, the party received its first news that a great European war was about to begin. 
steamship offices were being stormed by crowds of frantic American tourists. Martial law was declared. The streets were alive with soldiers and weeping women. Shops were closed. The clerks having been drafted into the army, the city hummed with militarism. Underneath the excitement was the stern, stoic attitude of the French in preparing to meet their old enemy, combined with their calmness in refraining from outbreaks against German residents of Paris. One of the party alluding to the incongruous position in which the peace delegates found themselves, said, it might be interesting to observe the unique and almost humorous situation into which these peace delegates were thrown, starting out a week before with the largest hope and most enthusiastic anticipation of effecting a closer tie between nations, and swinging the churches of Christendom into a clearer alignment against international martial attitudes. We were instantly disarmed, bound, and cast into chains of utter helplessness not even feeling free to express the feeblest sentiment against the high-rising tide of military activity. We were lost on a tempestuous sea, the dove of peace had been beaten, broken wing to shore, and the olive branch lost in its general fury. Describing conditions in Paris on August 12th, he says, We are in a state of tense expectation, so acute that it dulls the senses, Paris is relapsing into the condition of an audience assisting at a thrilling drama with intolerably long entrees during which it tries to think of its own personal affairs. We know that pages of history are being rapidly engraved in steel, written in blood, illuminated in the margin with glory on a background of heroism and suffering. Not more than a few score miles away, the shrieking Camelot's peddlers gallop through the streets waving their news sheets, but it is almost always news of 24 hours ago. The iron hand of the censor reduces the press to a monotonous repetition of the same formula. Only headlines give scope for originality. Of local news there is none. There is nothing doing in Paris but steady preparation for meeting contingencies by organizing ambulances and relief for the poor. From the thousands of tales brought back by American tourists caught in Germany at the outbreak of the war, there is more than enough evidence that they were not treated with that courtesy manifested towards them by the French. They were arrested as spies, subjected to all sorts of embarrassments and indignities, their persons searched their baggage and letters examined, and frequently were detained for long periods without any explanation being offered. When finally taken to the frontier, they were not merely put across frequently they were in a sense thrown across, nor were the subjects of other nations, particularly those with which Germany was at war, treated with that fine restraint which characterized the French. Here is an account by a traveler of the treatment of Russian subjects, we left Berlin on the day Germany declared war against Russia within 75 miles of the frontier. 1.000 Russians in the train by which they were traveling were turned out of the carriage and compelled to spend 18 hours without food in an open field surrounded by soldiers with fixed bayonets. Then they were placed in dirty cattle wagons, about 60 men, women and children to a wagon, and for 28 hours were carried about Prussia without food, drink or privacy. In Stettin they were lodged in big pens, and next morning were sent off by steamer to Arugan. Once they made their way to Denmark and Sweden without money or luggage, Sweden provided them with food and free passage to the Russian frontier. Five of our fellow passengers went mad. The steamship Philadelphia note the name, signifying brotherly love. So completely lost sight of in the conflict was the first passenger liner to reach America after the beginning of the European war. A more remarkable crowd never arrived in New York City by steamship or train. There were men of millions and persons of modest means who had slept side by side on the journey over, voyagers with balances of tens of thousands of dollars in banks and not a cent in their pocketbooks, 
men able and eager to pay any price for the best accommodations, to be had, yet satisfied and happy sharing banks in the steerage, there were women who had lost all baggage and had come alone, their friends and relatives being unable to get accommodations on the vessel, there were children who had come on board with their mothers, with neither money nor reservations, who were happy because they had received the very best treatment from all the steamship's officers and crew and because they had enjoyed the most comfortable quarters to be had, surrendered by men who were content to sleep in most humble surroundings, or, if necessary, as happened in a few cases, to sleep on the decks when the weather permitted, wealthy, but without funds. Many of the passengers gave jewelry to the stewards and other employees of the steamship as the tips which they assumed were expected even in times of stress. The crew took them apologetically. Some said they were content to take only the thanks of the passengers. One woman of wealth and social position, without money, and having lost her checkbook with her baggage, as had many others of the passengers, gave a pair of valuable bracelets to her steward with the request that he give them to his wife. She gave a hat the only one she managed to take with her on her flight from Switzerland to her stewardess. The Statue of Liberty never looked so beautiful to a party of Americans before. The strains of the star-spangled banner, as they echoed over the waters of the bay, were never sweeter nor more inspiring. As the Philadelphia approached quarantine, the notes of the American anthem swelled until, as she slowed down to await the coming of the physicians and customs officials, it rose to a great crescendo which fell upon the ears of all within many hundred yards and brought an answering chorus from the throngs who waited to extend their hands to relatives and friends. There was prophecy in the minds of men and women aboard that ship. Some of them had been brought into actual contact with the war, others very near it. In the minds of all was the vision that liberty, enlightenment and all the fruits of progress were threatened, that if they were to be saved, somehow, this land typified the spirit of succor, somehow the aid was to proceed from here. Liberty never had a more cherished meaning to men of this republic. In the minds of many the conviction had taken root, that if autocracy and absolute monarchy were to be overthrown, that government of the people, by the people, for the people, should not perish from the earth. It would eventually require from America that supreme sacrifice in devotion and blood that have periods in the growth and development of nations is their last resort against the menace of external attack, and, regardless of the reflections of theorists and philosophers, the best and surest guarantee of their longevity, that the principles upon which they were builded were something more than mere words, hollow platitudes, meaning nothing, worthy of nothing, inspiring nothing, it was the dawning of a day, new and strange in its requirements of America whose isolation and policy, as bequeathed by the fathers, had kept it aloof from the bickerings and quarrels of the nations that composed the armed camp of Europe, during which, as subsequent events proved, the blood of the Caucasian and the Negro would upon many a hard-fought pass, many a smoking trench in the battle zone of Europe, run together in one rivulet of departing life, for the guarantee of liberty throughout all the earth, and the establishment of justice at its uttermost bounds and ends. Chapter I The Awakening of America President clings to neutrality Monroe Doctrine and Washington's warning German crimes and German victories Cardinal Mercier's letter Military operations First submarine activities The OUSIDA and IA Outrage Exchange of Notes United States aroused role of passive onlooker becomes irksome First modification of principles of Washington and Monroe Our destiny looms August 4.1914 President Wilson proclaimed the neutrality of the United States a more consistent attempt to maintain that attitude was never made by a nation. In an appeal addressed to the American people on August 18th, 
the president implored the citizens to refrain from taking sides. Part of his utterance on that occasion was, we must be impartial in thought as well as in action, must put a curb upon our sentiments as well as upon every transaction that might be construed as a preference of one party to the struggle before another. My thought is of America. I am speaking. I feel sure. The earnest wish and purpose of every thoughtful American that this great country of ours, which island of course, the first in our thoughts and in our hearts, should show herself in this time of peculiar trial a nation fit beyond others to exhibit the fine poise of undisturbed judgment, the dignity of self-control, the efficiency of dispassionate action, a nation that neither sits in judgment upon others, nor is disturbed in her own counsels and which keeps herself fit and free to do what is honest and disinterested and truly serviceable for the peace of the world. American poise had been somewhat disturbed over the treatment of American tourists caught in Germany at the outbreak of the war. American sentiment was openly agitated by the invasion of Belgium and the insolent repudiation by Germany of her treaty obligations. The German Chancellor had referred to the treaty with Belgium as a scrap of paper. These things had created a suspicion in American minds having to do with what seemed Germany's real and ulterior object, but in the main the people of this county accepted the President's appeal in the spirit in which it was intended and tried to live up to it, which attitude was kept to the very limit of human forbearance. A few editors and public men, mostly opposed to the President politically, thought we were carrying the principle of neutrality too far, that the violation of Belgium was a crime against humanity in general and that if we did not at least protest against it, we would be guilty of national stultification if not downright cowardice. Against this view was invoked the time-honored principles of the Monroe Doctrine and its great corollary, Washington's advice against becoming entangled in European affairs. Our first president, in his farewell address, established a precept of national conduct that up to the time we were drawn into the European war, had become almost a principle of religion with us. He said, against the insidious wiles of foreign influence I conjure you to believe me. Fellow citizens the jealousy of a free people ought to constantly awake, since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of republican government Europe has a set of primary interests which to us have none or a very remote relation, hence she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concern, hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. The Monroe Doctrine was a statement of principles made by President Monroe in his famous message of December 2, 1823. The occasion of the utterance was the threat by the so-called Holy Alliance to interfere forcibly in South America with a view to a receding Spain in control of her former colonies there. President Monroe wanting to the fact that it was a principle of American policy not to intermeddle in European affairs, gave warning that any attempt by the monarchies of Europe to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere would be considered by the United States as dangerous to our peace and safety. This warning fell in line with British policy at the time and so proved efficacious. Illustration, Colored Women in Hospital Garments Class of Branch Number 6, New Orleans Chapter, American Red Cross, Louise J. Arosis. Director, Illustration, Red Cross Workers, Prominent Colored Women of Atlanta, GA, who organized canteen for relief of Negro soldiers going to and returning from war. Illustration, Jazz and Southern Melodies Hasten Cure, Negro Sailor Entertaining Disabled Navy Men in Hospital for C.O.N.V.A. Alias C.N.D.S. Illustration, Corporal Fred, 
McIntyre of 369th Infantry, with picture of the Kaiser which he captured from a German officer. Illustration, Eliudi, R.O.B.R.D.L. Campbell, Negro officer of the 368th Infantry who won fame and the D.S.C. in Argonne Forest. He devised a clever piece of strategy and displayed great heroism in the execution of it. Illustration, Emma J. Scott, appointed by Secretary Baker, A.S. Special Assistant during the World War. He was formerly confidential secretary to the late Booker T. Washington. Illustration, Top General Diaz, Commander-in-Chief Italian Armies, Marshal F.O.C.H., Commander-in-Chief Allied Forces, Center General Pershing, Commander-in-Chief American Armies, Admiral Sims, in charge of American naval operations overseas, Bottom King Albert, Commander-in-Chief Belgian Army, Field Marshal Haig, Head of British Armies. In a later section of the same message the proposition was also advanced that the American continent was no longer subject to colonization. This clause of the doctrine was the work of Monroe's Secretary of State.